This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Komikaela Naimen Toko Ingoa. My name is Michaela Naiman and I'm your host. Welcome. This show focuses on the arts and creativity in Taranaki and beyond. We aim to cover the diversity of arts from painting, literature, songwriting, theatre, pottery, poetry, sculpture and how the creative arts contribute to our community, as well as our own sense of purpose and well-being. The Sugarloafing Artscast is generously supported by the Govette Brewster Art Gallery and Len Lai Centre. Stay tuned to find out more. I'm delighted today to be talking to Ruha Fifita across the ocean of water that separates us, which is quite apt as Ruha's wonderful tapa work can be viewed in the current Te Ao Liquid Constituencies exhibition at the Govette Brewster Art Gallery. And Ruha is an avid collaborator and currently works as a curatorial assistant for Pacific Art at the Contemporary Gallery of Modern Art. Welcome, Ruha. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be talking to you. And Ruha, I've just viewed your uh, large-scale tapa art in Auckland at the magnificent Robin White Art Exhibition. And of course, here in New Plymouth at the Govette Brewster Art Gallery in the current <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> oh, getting around. Congratulations, fabulous work. Mm. So you were born and raised in the Kingdom of Tonga and um, you continue to engage them with the Pacific region in a, a kind of interdisciplinary space, really. And through your work then as the curatorial assistant for Pacific art at the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art, so how did you end up there? Could you share a bit of your journey with us? Yeah, so for most of my upbringing, before I left when I was almost 22, Tonga, and it was really to pursue tertiary education, or a second go at a, a second kind of undergrad that would allow me to uh, gain qualification to support work I was involved in at the time with also with friends and family in, in Tonga, we'd been really exploring um, predominantly through an initiative called On The Spot, the, the contribution of art as a form of expression that could, um, how it could contribute to community building activities and had, it had an initial focus on supporting the achievement of the uh, Millennium Development Goals that also thinking about how to engage young people and uh, communities and that through the arts and the achievement of those goals. I think very quickly uh, being involved in that work in a place like Tonga and, you know, being inspired by the energy that comes from participating in artistic activities and collaboration and, you know, really the power of the arts in, in that unique context was enough to kind of think, okay, this is kind of a lifelong thing I would love to explore. And, and what would allow, you know, as well as making art, it was so necessary to also have the skills to kind of how do you write about, uh, how do you, you know, project coordination and grant writing and all of those things become, you can't just be an artist because there's, <laughs> you know, 
the ecosystem of support, the infrastructure looks a bit different. So to pursue a career kind of with that focus, yeah, not as straightforward. So I thought, let's go and get some skills that would allow me to continue to work in the kind of work on this, what I was doing and um, see what possibilities there were to expand. So I found that course in, in Queensland. In, what was it called? In a, uh, it was a, a Bachelor of Creative Industries at the mm. Queensland University of Technology. And at the time it was exciting and that allowed you just to mix and match papers from all different disciplines and you could mix them with management and events planning and so I just thought okay this is great you know it's a bit different than doing a, a bachelor of arts or of fine arts where you uh, maybe doesn't have as much practical relevance at back so I have an uncle that lives in here in Ipswich, <laughs> uh, just outside of the Brisbane city and so I came and lived with him for a few months and gave it a go and it, after completing that degree I guess just in the networks I've you know continued to maintain connection with Tonga would often you know return during the very long four-month uni breaks to continue <laughs> working in Tonga um spend time with family and, and go back but it's been that kind of relationship and just coming out of uni got uh really involved in activities of the international Baha'i community that were kind of emerging at neighborhood level working with people of diverse backgrounds to think about how these increasingly diverse neighbor you know like streets even can start to ownership of them. I got really involved in in those things and starting to see a lot more of oh what the possibilities were to uh, learn about use of the arts here and in those contexts and stayed and then got uh, pulled into I think just through a network I, I was part of a performance with Rako Pacifica at one of the Asia Pacific Triennials I think it was the eighth one the eighth Asia Pacific Triennial that one of the Queensland Art Gallery's like flagship exhibitions mm. and met with the curator there that time we just had some interesting conversations and so when a role came up to be a research assistant initially for Pacific Art um, I was approached and then that's just gradually evolved into more curatorial work as well. <laughs> yeah well it's all about those that like you said it is an ecosystem and you kind of need to get those connections uh, so yeah I mean you're you're very humble about what what you've done here but it's uh, quite amazing to hear how you started and thinking about the skills and how you could connect and uh, yeah get a foot in so I was also wondering about this tapa work then this large tapa lototo at um, Govet Brewster is absolutely stunning so for anyone out there who hasn't seen it go and have a look and when we briefly talked then at the blessing ceremony of uh, Te Ao liquid constituencies before Christmas, you were very quick to say that it is a collaborative work. So there are many hands who have contributed to this, mm. you know, to turn the bark of the mulberry tree into this beautiful, creamy, uh, cloth-like tapa, and then, uh, of yeah. course, uh, paint it. But for those who don't know very much about tapa work, could you explain a little bit how you, first of all, make the tapa, how long it takes, what it takes to make a piece that is as big as your dining table or bigger? Yeah, um, so I guess for Natu, and I'm also still learning about the practice, I think the level you can understand just by observation, living in Tonga, so much that requires time and deep relationships with people and a real commitment to continue to kind of dig into the complexities of it. And so just to, I really see engaging with this practice at the forefront of my mind is the space that allows me to really uh, learn, learn about it and 
um, think about the role that it can continue to play in communities today. But in saying that, one of the things that really, in my earliest experiences with it, uh, struck me was the extensive collaboration that's required. And you can really see the richness of an art form that has emerged as a very integral part of community life. It's not separate from education. It's not separate oh. from you know, material well-being, prosperity. It's not separate from, yeah, kind of uh, the you know, the value of, of local storytelling and of yeah. leadership and hierarchy and like kind of those structures of society. And so that was something where you kind of were the purpose of a, a ngatu. Many people play a role initially. So they're often made by, um, you know, throughout the whole year and groups of women within a village will work together to make them. But men have also a distinct role there, you know, in the where the plants are grown and tended for, that, that's a, a space that they're in more of the time. So they And then you have to harvest the bark to make the tapa. Whose role is that? Well, my understanding is that both men and women, you know, can participate in the harvesting, stripping of the bark. It is the inner bark. So there's like the outer bark, it is the inner bark. So you've got to strip it from the pith of the, the tree and then also strip the outer bark from it. Um, there's a drying process and then once it gets to beating I think that's where women really are at the forefront of also oh, that's of, the of women's women. work oh. the beating of the so inner bark. the beating of it you know you're predominantly you know I mean often but it's something you can do at home I'll tend to other responsibilities and I think it's yeah it's that way as far as I understand so you know it's there and it's a beautiful sound of wood on wood with the tapa in between you know the piece well at that stage it's actually called fetaki so the material as well goes it's has a different name at each stage of the process mm. and so that just called fetali. And how long does it take um, to be made from to, from the start? Like how long does it actually take? Because it's kind of like you beat it until all these fibers glue and stick together and become this beautiful material. It's kind of a few I don't know if you can hear me okay, but there's a few parallel processes I guess that are happening. So there's uh, the beating that's multiple women may be beating tutu, the unbeaten, then it becomes fetaaki, to then contribute to one piece. So you kind of the time is spread across many hands. And then that may take, you know, a month, a few weeks, depending on the size of the final work and the many, you know, the number of contributors. So it could be multiple months or um, I guess the timeline is, is fluid, but then they're felting pieces together as well as, yeah, kind of beating them out to enlarge. And then the actual printing, when all of those pieces are brought together in, you know, with a, a community space, which I've learned the original name for that space would have been Falehanga, which is um, a space where the, the women do the work with their hands and that is, you know, a matter of hours, the actual joining and, and what's also been prepared uh, for that day is, is a relief, is all the pattern work. So almost the blueprint, which is done on kind of a relief board that's then, as the pieces are joined together, that pattern is rubbed mm. up onto the top, almost like you would do a leaf rubbing. And so you're, you're joining and rubbing that template of the final work onto the surface at the same time. And so that is a few hours, but especially for particular dimensions. I mean, they're made up to 30, 60 meters long, mm. you know, um, depending on their purpose. Amazing. Uh, can take the whole day and you want to start early so that you can get it out while this is still high and can dry because there's glue that's involved. Mm. So, I mean, it's quite extensive. And then the painting um, depends then on the job work. So, mm. yeah. and, but it can take also weeks. 
Amazing. Okay, we will take a short uh, music break here. And you have um, chosen Armea by Rocco Pacifica's uh, Mama Hanua album. Why this one? The artists are good friends and I love listening to this album. It brings back <laughs> a lot of beautiful memories, also has an important message and have had the bounty of dancing to some of these albums. So, yeah. Let's well, listen to that. <laughs>
to the Sugarloaf Arts Cast. You're listening to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM, and I'm your host, Michaela Nyman. We're grateful to the Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Lenlai Center for sponsoring this show. And I'm delighted today to be talking to Ruha Fifita uh, across the ocean. And uh, we are talking about the large scale tapa art that is currently on display in the Robin White exhibition in Auckland and here in New Plymouth at uh, Teao. Uh, liquid constituencies. So we were talking about making the tapa cloth, but the patterns and motives, the kopesi in Lototo, emerged from your conversation then with the local elders, family members, and scientists in Vavao and uh, Iluen, is that how you say it in Tonga? Uh, yeah. They reflect the significance of um, the ancestral migration of whales that links uh, these two places which uh, in itself is very interesting. Can you tell us a bit about these conversations and what actually, give us an idea how they happened over how long? Uh, well, thank you. So yeah, I was in, uh, this work was timed with what was named International Year of the Whale by um, the Pacific Communities Environmental Group called SPREP. And so in that time, there was an exhibition that was happening, which would be it's one of you know its first showings as a work. Although um, its ultimate intention was to become something that could use be used by family for customary purpose, it would get this this initial uh, opportunity to engage with the discourse happening around um, the significance of this year and those creatures to different cultures, and so that was something that resonated with me coming from. The island of Avao, this is where I was born. It's also where the Tonga tribe of humpback whales um, return to every year and have done so as an ancient part of their ancient migration to give birth to their young. And so I really took that metaphor of kind of what does it mean to have such an intimate sharing of space with these kind of majestic creatures that is not in the Pacific and that really we have so much to learn from in terms of their yeah, spirit of, of just courage and sacrifice, I guess, in the way that they that they exhibit and that way of caring for their young and traveling. So 6,000 kilometers that they travel to reach that island, um, to reach Laval. That was also, uh, there's another group of women we imagine would co-mingle <laughs> down south, but that would make the same um, trip each year. And so the the opportunity to, to go to Luan, I thought you know this this really felt so ripe as a space to then return to Vava'u for a significant period of time and explore that you know that's where my grandmother practiced and you know start to um, learn from those that she used to work with and after coming out of the work with Robin I did have a lot of questions that I thought okay we love to make this material you know what did how did um, those in my village work with this practice you know why has it kind of uh, why has it discontinued, you know, in the same, it's not made as frequently now and um, what knowledge still remains, what story still remains. So I kind of joined the conversations with community around that, also with looking at being being a village that was on, right on the edge of a harbour that a group of whales would come and give birth every year as well. So, um, yeah, just through relationships with the Vatlo Environmental Protection Association, with uh, local navigator, Anofo Havea, and whale watching tour guides that would do you know learning about how to do that in a more culturally appropriate way so I spoke to 
um, Nori Blanks, and who's one of the educators for for those that run the whale tours, uh, guided tours, and then and Don Blanks too, who's been a, a big promoter of of kind of of the environmental work that happens in that on that island. With them, came out with um, just a lot of personal reflections, and that really informed the design. So on the work, you'll see that there are there's the use of uh, two kind of new or adapted kupesi prints that speak to this idea of of how interconnectedness of everything you look at this one creature and by focusing on one you realize that it you know the the balance of nature and this kind of connection that happens between every part without any laxity that your action really leads to a direct impact on all of those different things you're connected to with people but just as much so with the physical environment um, was a really profound thing and the space of what is what is it that we have to remain conscious of to really keep that necessary level of humility towards our environment and wonderment and curiosity intact which I think is that most appropriate way to engage you know that we have so much to learn and um, and we are such a uh, you know we're this organic part of this whole that needs to be we should want to understand and, and weigh out decisions in that in that way so it kind of led to a lot of those discussions and it was really beautiful to then go to Iluan with that knowledge both of the practice but also of the significance of the whales and travel to spend some time on Iluan Island in Caledonia where they have a festival each year that celebrates the coming of the whales and the connection with with their agricultural customs and they were fighting to protect um, part of the ocean space around them as a the ocean sanctuary and so there was uh, conversations there but even without language it's French speaking in New Caledonia that they also had customs around working with similar materials that had been kind of lost and were yearning for so got so many visits where we were having conversations in English <laughs> and French and drawing <laughs> pictures and pointing at things so it became a kind of a language that we could look at and, and look at each other through which was really exciting as well and the you know just working together making some of the dyes and finding pigments that they would use and testing them on the material you know it's very embryonic kind of step but you always feel like there's significance and how it reminds you of what's possible through yeah. these interactions absolutely and so the, with the final design was that a collaborative de decision as well or is it more your decision yeah no the final design was was my decision I was working <laughs> A lot of them were there, but it was this thing of, I think, in that space trying to learn about, and I have a lot of adaptions to the way now in future projects that this could look, but how does how does an artist play a role in really mm. trying to express collective understanding rather than your own view? And how do you kind of honor that? And, yeah, and I think you've honored it beautifully. <laughs> Okay, well, let's take a break here and listen to another song. And this is uh, E O Mai by Kiali E. Rachel. Why have you um, uh, selected this one? Uh, this is one I was just grateful to come across through the recommendation of a friend. <laughs> and so let's I thought listen. I would offer it also. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> let's listen to it. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast, and I'm your host, Michaela Nyman. We are grateful to the Govetbrusta Art Gallery and Len Center for sponsoring the show. And I'm delighted that I'm talking to Ruha Fifita today about Tapa Art and her amazing work that uh, can be viewed up in the Robin White exhibition in Auckland, but also here in New Plymouth at the Govetbrusta Art Gallery in Teao, Liquid Constituencies. And we are specifically talking about collaborative art, like the making of a tapa. And Lototo is a huge work. It takes up um, one wall in the gallery uh, at Covet Brewster at the moment. So we talked about design. So you, you mentioned the uh, pigments and the colors and all the trial and er- error that goes with it. So they all come from earth pigments and natural dyes. What plants and pigments do you use and how do you prepare them? Yeah, and how do you meet the archival requirements of art institutions? Are these all permanent? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I um should mention the time in Vavao when I was there was possible because my dad moved back and he was a huge help, especially in the dyes and the, yeah, in the dye making and, you know, connecting with local elders. But so we did a lot of this work together, which was really special thing to kind of observe. And of course, it's his mother that, um, and so his memories of of her engaging with that practice were were precious to be able to revisit together and to go back to. So we're working with mangrove, um, particular kind of mangrove tree, and um, going back and stripping. And he would, you know, in those moments, be like, "Oh, I remember that they strip it so that it doesn't kill the tree," and you know, kind of experimenting in that space together. And then trying to, okay, we peel this part off, let's boil it and see, you know, how long do we need to boil it? It was a lot of questions, actually. And we'd run up the road to ask another uncle or an auntie of like, are we doing this right? <laughs> um, kind of a space. So mangrove, the mangrove bark was one and a rare color on its own. It's been boiled for many hours um, and stripped. We also, um, through the recommendation of an uncle living there, uh, left went and dug up the the noni root and it was more this is not a pigment that really was used always on on ngatu but um it is a strong pigment and we thought it would be a nice experiment with mixing it with other things and so it's a bright yellow and depending on how it mixes it can also become a um, with other materials a purple or a deep red wow that we know are used in other places we made yeah we made um the noni dye together just by digging up kind of you dig up the complete root of the noni tree or nonu tree I should say and um, a similar thing stripping away the, the colored bark and and boiling it over a long period of time and then mixing it with uh, we got instructions to kind of mix it with certain shrubs and trees from around the coast that would help to <laughs> fix the color but um, yeah so that was mainly for with their mangrove trees and uh, that were there roadside and we kind of filter it um, but I think the most significant pigment is the black mm. which makes it what's called a ngatuta uli it has a special um, role in Tongan society as kind of a completing piece of a set that's really meant for some of the most significant ceremonies funerals especially and the black you know we've had so many wonderful conversations about the significance of that black I think when you encounter it there's a depth to it that's kind of like it's captured from what we've learned from kind of multiple conversations as well especially those guided by Tuna Filakepa initially with the work with Robin 
was that there was a lot of ritual and ceremony around that space and to kind of go through it it's very delicate you're you're you've got dried candles um, strung together in some way and then you have to have a really closed environment that allows when you light that candle nut that's so rich in fat and oil it lights like a candle we call it tui tui or in other parts of the pacific known as kui kui you light it and the flame you know lets off a little stream of black smoke on the top and so the task is to collect that black smoke So it's really the soot from lighting the candle nut that becomes that black pigment. Yes. So it's not the ash of it. No. It's the actual, which is, it's so fine and it gathers if you have to, we've experimented with many different ways. I think in the past it was like a, some kind of pot and they would put coconut cream and from the husk of a coconut, you can kind of get a, a powder if you rub it and you get this kind of sawdust um, from the husk of the coconut and you kind of stick it to the coconut cream that's lying the, the surface sitting above this loosened candle nut and that captures the soot and then it starts to form long kind of strands of hair almost that start off exaltites and then become really long, really like strands of hair and, and we'll often pray and sing to the goddess Hina who we know in the region as being this beautiful goddess with beautiful long black hair and so it was those attributes that were called for and you know you can just imagine this wonderment of how does this how does this happen it's really like hair and so and you really feel sitting there for hours and day after day that you want to sing and celebrate this incredible (laughs) process and so those things started very you know feel like a matter of necessity not just following them because they were the way it was done in the past but like yes let's not eat while we do this and not have other things happening and Mm. make sure there is two people that can just give it full focus so the flame doesn't go out you know otherwise if there's not enough intensity it won't build that stalactite photo but so we experimented a lot with different contraptions and yeah that was the second time my dad and I had done it we'd also for one we had notebooks of different techniques and ways to make it um, more effective and well it's it's uh so it's a real time-consuming task but you also have a such a focus on each moment or momentum of the process and everyone seems to be really in that moment too so in a way it sounds very meditative but uh, yeah long and slow process and a lot of experimenting and finding new ways of doing things that have been traditionally done as well yeah no and I think it's really lovely engaging with this practice to kind of be able to you know i think it was important that it was about the process more importantly than the outcome you know I didn't go in with okay this is the work to make on these the designs and you know you kind of just are following that momentum that others allow by the contributions they make and I think that's it you see this is something that's fallen out of all those that without one of those conversations the whole work would have been completely different and that's a space I've kind of come to you know to kind of appreciate and it's that balance of going how much of this was me and how much is a collaboration where does it stop it it's a hard line to draw mm. and so in that way it was really beautiful that it became a piece that could be shared but and used by many as well that it's function you know I mm. it didn't feel appropriate that it was a work for sale or mm. so um mm. Oh, it's yeah. magnificent work. Yeah, I unashamedly declare that it's one of my favorite pieces. 
<laughs> and it's so beautiful up close as well. All that uh, detail of the kupesi, and then you step back, and it's like this almost rising sun and burning core of something. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Oh, so on that note, we will take another music break, and this is Tevaka Loimata Emaligi. And actually, you can, uh, if you look it up online, you can find both Tuvaluan and English subtitles. So how come yes. you chose this one? Uh, yeah, this song, we live currently with a Keleta Vene in the home that I'm in. And I love this song. Initially, I did a presentation on it in high school and then later was able to, it was one of their favorite songs and they were able to give really new insight to the context behind the story and what it's meant for their community. So nice one to share also. Yeah, lovely. Let's listen to it.
Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Arts Cast, and I'm your host, Michaela Nyman. We are grateful to Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Len Lai Center for sponsoring this show. And I'm delighted today to be talking to Ruha Fifita. And we're talking about uh, tapa making and uh, this whole collaborative work that goes into a piece as big as the Lototo, which you can see at the Govet Brewster's uh, Te Ao Liquid Constituencies exhibition at the moment. So Robin White also came and joined you here in New Plymouth. And uh, you two have been collaborating for some years now, I see, on various projects, haven't you? I think, uh, yeah, I think that together you have actually contributed to elevating the tapa and what what it can be to something else for kind of a more Western audience, I guess, a Palangi audience. But it's wonderful to see what it can be and the uh, yeah how beautiful it is in in these rich huge exhibitions that we are seeing right now in Auckland and here in New Plymouth. So what is it about artistic collaboration that excites you? You talked a bit about this that it can take you in unexpected directions and how much is you and how much has everyone else put in? What is it that really yeah. makes collaboration so exciting? Well, yeah, I mean, it was really special, actually. It has been really special to be able to use the Govet Brewster in the way that they've acknowledged this aspect of the work. And so Robin White was there, but also, and was invited as a guest, but also my sister, Ebony came, Tamari from Fiji was in New Zealand, who's someone else we've collaborated with, Susanna Leatawa, who has founded and works through the Laka um, studio space in Onehanga in, in Auckland and other friends, Petty, Noki, that are all all there. We told you my nephews. This uh, group was all there, Sarah, of women that we've, you know, had engaged in some early discussions around the significance and considering this question together, I guess, of like what what is the significance of the collaborative aspect of this kind of work that occurs? And I think a lot of it is in the way that working together with others of diverse backgrounds demands you to build certain qualities and capacities you wouldn't otherwise, you know, be really challenging. (laughs) And, you know, comes across different challenges always at every stage, but it's this work of, um, of its potential to really help the understanding of the collective advance to a place that wouldn't be achievable otherwise to help those involved build you know to test your your humility your um compassion your creativity even uh your consultation skills all of those things that i think are so necessary in the world today yes uh, you know your ego which is something that i think we have to really welcome those opportunities and see that they um lead to so much richness and so in that space it's been lovely to see one work is really in the context of not a finished thing, but how it generates and allows, you know, it's part of a process that's ongoing and that's fallen out at this stage, but you're kind of continuing to explore things that have to be seen. The real outcomes are what that process provides and what Mm -hmm. those relationships provide for Mm -hmm. all of those involved. It's a huge learning opportunity, isn't it? But but at the same time, you continue a conversation, you know, within the community that um, you are building on indigenous art practices that have been handed down and skills handed down through generations. And at the same time, you're supporting community to come together and their well-being and their stories to carry on and the craft and art. It's a lot. Yeah, well, I think trying and making an effort and knowing you're not the only ones really or the only 
you know, this is something also happening in Tonga. There is, it's a very alive practice and it's happening in other parts of the Pacific and it's happening, you know, many other artists are engaging with the practice. And so it's that question of what contribution can we make to what many are learning about the significance of this practice? What's distinctive? And that requires just looking back at your own background, your own networks, the places that you've grown up in and, and trying to also have interest and understand what, what others are learning and how to how to build and work together where possible so you're right it is it is a kind of a a long process and I think it needs to be lifelong really to give <laughs> integrity there's so much from the earlier works that you kind of you know you know that now the way of working has only been informed by the different I don't know if mistakes but you know like um where things that you learned from all of those experiences leading up to and it excites you about how much more, how much further there is to go. So you really start to feel more and more you're at the beginning, every step you take. Mm. Well, we're about uh, coming to the end, but I um, think, yeah, this is um, just fabulous to hear about all this uh, collaboration, but also about the craft and skills required. So is there anything specific Mm. you would like to say to people who maybe would like to now go and check out the exhibition at Govet Brewster if they haven't engaged with the Teao liquid constituencies yet. Are there any specific words you would like to pass on? Yeah, I think the the kind of curatorial, overarching curatorial focus and, and you know, it's creating a conversation between many works and works that honour, you know, um, address issues that are about the well-being of ourselves, but um, seeing the significance of that connection to the bodies of water that connect and, and nourish us. And so the exhibition itself was such a eye-opener to kind of yeah, see how much work is being done and just to be inspired by the incredible courage and determination of, like, you see even great distances. You have so much to learn from and so much of what people are doing that enriches your own ways of thinking and practice so I think to really look for those connections is an exciting way to engage with the exhibition and um, to welcome the challenges of questions that are being asked of you as an audience and I think the dream is always that um, an exhibition will give people the space to think about how they can expand their ways of thinking and shift the ways of behaving so I think to go in and really look for that in the exhibition is um, probably a really meaningful way for artists as well Mm. to engage. And where can people find uh, out more about you and your work? Um, at the moment, I've been doing a lot of work more as as a part of a collective group of friends and um, going under the name Evie, mm-hmm. so I-V-I. And we're not that great on, like, that active on social media always, but there is a bit of, a bit of, um, work there and we'll be we'll be participating in the National, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney opening at the end of March. But other than that, yeah, I'm really, yeah, keen to chat if people just want to reach out. Yeah. <laughs> any time to work would be very welcome. And is there any chance that we will see you here in New Plymouth before the exhibition closes on the 20th of March? Yes, potentially we'll be back in March for some time. I've had the great bounty of continuing to work in other ways with the gallery um, through some curatorial research. And so... That has been, yeah, it makes it all the more special to also have been able to exhibit there. I will be back. Yeah, oh, we'll take that as a promise. 
So thank you so much, uh, Ruha. It has been amazing talking to you and thank you for all the work you do together with others and, you know, enlighten us, enrich us with uh, your art and um, very much looking forward to seeing what uh, will come next. And fabulous to know that you will continue collaborating with the Gourbet Brewster and maybe we'll see you in New Plymouth before too long. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been really um, an encouraging and uh, valuable. Thank you. And we'll end by listening to some pan pipes from the Solomon Islands. So travel well, Ruha, and hope to see you soon. Thank you. You too. tuning in to this week's episode of the Sugarloafing Artscast on 104.4 FM. My name is Michaela Naiman and you can contact me with feedback and ideas for shows at Access Radio Taranaki or email me on community at accessradiotaranaki.com. You can check out the artists, guests and their fabulous work on our Sugarloafing Facebook page and Instagram. To listen to previous episodes of the show, go to accessradiotaranaki.com and search us up under current shows. The Sugarloafing Artscast was made possible with the support of Govet Brewster Art Gallery and the Len Lai Center. Until next week. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to www.accessradiotaranaki.com.